0: Good day, you're tuned into Free City Radio. This is the 47th edition, and I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Um, It's uh, the 22nd of June in Montreal, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Today on the program, I wanted to share a conversation that I had with Ingrid Waldron, uh, who is an author, a professor, Um, Ingrid has done a lot of important work about uh, bringing up systemic issues around structural environmental racism uh, in the context of Canada um, and really has pushed for there to be a broader understanding of Uh, structural racism in regards to urban planning, in regards to environmental laws um, within the context of the climate justice movement, uh, and has campaigned uh, seriously to push this forward. Ingrid uh, has worked on many projects, and we hear about um, some of them within this exchange in terms of current organizing and networks across Canada to oppose uh, environmental racism. Uh, Currently, uh, Ingrid is the co-chair of the Dalhousie uh, University's Black Faculty and Staff Caucus um, and um, co-produced a film in 2019 called There's Something in the Water with actor Elliot Page. Um, And uh, Ingrid has published a book uh, by the same name, uh, There's Something in the Water. I'm really lucky to uh, get the opportunity... Opportunity uh, to share this exchange with you, uh, with Ingrid Waldron. Uh, I was first introduced um, directly to Ingrid by a common friend, uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, activist uh, Marlene Hale. Uh, we were together on a panel uh, conversation, and uh, I was really taken by uh, the structural analysis around environmental racism that Ingrid uh, presented. And I thought it would be important to uh, share uh, her reflections here on Free City Radio. So, this is our conversation for the week. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal, and here's my exchange with Ingrid Waldron. I'm lucky today to be joined by Ingrid Waldron, uh, who has been really at the forefront of putting forward a critique of systemic environmental racism in Canada. as it plays out in relation to Black communities, Indigenous communities, other racialized communities, and has successfully um, really brought forward these issues in relation to environmental protection laws, in relation to zoning, and uh, encouraged a rethinking about how environmental racism plays out a, on a structural level. Um, Ingrid is a writer and a professor who's joining us from Halifax. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks again. Um, and um, I guess just first to start, um, you know we are um, sort of in the week after or in the you know little bit after, there has been you know a very important conversation about the genocidal practices um, surrounding residential schools um, it has been covered widely in the mainstream media um, and there is a uh, discussion about what um, that will look like at other residential school locations uh, throughout uh, throughout the territories of what is called Canada um, but What often isn't connected is, at least on a lot of mainstream um, reports, is how this um, colonial past is connected to a colonial present. And your work really does address how the colonial present plays out in terms of environmental racism and how important it is to see that structurally. So just to start, I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about connecting the, the past and the present in terms of your specific work?
1: Yeah, I mean, with respect to uh, residential schools, it's, it's a really great example of how the past is connected to the present. I always say to individuals who say to me or who argue the fact that, you know, Indigenous people, Black people just simply need to let it go. That's the past. It's a new day. It's time to pull up your bootstraps and get on with it. And to those people, I always say the past is the present and the present is the past. And when I think of Indian residential schools specifically, the way the past is connected to the present for me, um, one of the most significant ways is that the survivors of residential schools are still traumatized by what has happened in the past. And that didn't necessarily only come out um, in the past few weeks based on what we saw, But it's always been the case. You know, we have so many uh, Indigenous scholars who are looking at residential schools and focusing on the fact that the survivors and even the children who did not, the children of survivors who did not experience it, um, experience trauma still, mental health problems, Mm -hmm. uh, suicidal ideation, Mm -hmm. a substance dependence because of something that happened in the past. For those who witnessed it, who experienced it, and also, for their children who did not, right? And many of those scholars are looking at epigenetics, right? How um, kind of negative exposures, negative life experiences can actually change the cell membrane. So for me, Mm -hmm. um, when we look at this particular issue, emotionally, psychologically, and even biologically, it's a really great example of how everything is connected. And for me, for anyone to say that the past isn't connected to the present, um, I find that I find that shocking uh, because we're all a product of our past, all of us. Um, I feel that as individuals, we are a product of our upbringing, our childhoods, our parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it isn't very different from that. You know, when you when you look at it from the perspectives of racialized peoples. Mm-hmm. So when I think about the work I've been doing on environmental racism, um, I see, of course, uh, very clear connections to the past. Uh, the term settler Colonialism that people are using increasingly uh, to discuss many issues, specifically those with respect to indigenous people, um, clearly, I would say, outlines or highlights how the past is connected to the present. Um, you know, many people make distinctions between, of course, colonialism and settler colonialism. Colonialism is, you know, happened in a kind of circular um motion or movement whereby the colonizers came to North America um and then returned home um in terms of settler colonialism the colonizers came uh to North America uh for the purposes of exploitation of lands and resources of indigenous peoples but they never returned home they mm-hmm. made the new home their home mm-hmm. right so it's a it's a different uh it's a it's a different um type of experience, um, but connected to colonization from the past. Mm -hmm. Um, The the laws of the past, for example, um, probably the one that most people refer to, which is uh, the Indian Act, Um, you know, when you look at what was proposed in the Indian Act Mm -hmm. and the kinds of challenges that uh, Indigenous people face because of the laws that were handed down at that time, there's a direct connection between uh, the policies, laws in the Indian Act and what we're seeing today. All you need to do is point to the Truth and Reconciliation Report. You know, when you look at the 300 or over 300 page report um, that came out, I guess, in 2015, they're talking about many of the social and political and economic Uh, and and health issues that have been impacting Indigenous peoples. Yeah. Those challenges that they currently face uh, are directly connected uh, to the challenges and the barriers and the harmful policies uh, that came out of the Indian Act. There's a clear connection. And we still have not addressed those issues. You know, Mm -hmm. residential schools is one of those issues in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. so you know, if you are somebody who's interested in history or you're a historian, you're probably you, you probably understand that the past is the present. Uh, but for those who try to undermine that, um, I really think all you need to do is look at in Canada. You need to look at the Truth and Reconciliation Report, and you'll see very clearly how connected the past is to the present.
0: So thinking about the specific work that you do around highlighting systems of environmental racism. Um, can you talk about the importance of deconstructing uh, those systems and also the challenges around, you know, naming and highlighting specific policies? Because I'm saying that because, you know, at, the, at a moment like this, you know, a lot of people are sharing on social media, even big institutions about, you know, uh, remembering and honoring um, the, the traumas and the, the, his, the history around, you know, for example, residential schools. But we're not talking about specific policy changes when we see that, you know, or like, you know, very technical things, but that actually have huge ramifications around like zoning or around, you know. So, yeah, if you could talk about the importance of the specifics around your work on environmental racism.
1: Well, that's really what's, you know, frustrating for me with respect to Canada and Canadians is that we're so focused on, um, talking about issues on the surface level but never digging deep to kind of identify the structural underlying factors that allow systemic inequalities in every social structure to persist over time. So it's always about policy and it's always about decision making and actions by individuals who have the opportunity to make those policies and decisions who never look like me, typically don't look like me, and they're not members of the Indigenous or Black community or BIPOC communities, right, so they come from a particular racial group and socioeconomic status. Um, In terms of environmental racism, you know, when I first started the project in Nova Scotia, you know, there were a lot of doubters, they didn't understand how the environment could be racist, and I really get that, you know, it's an interesting term, environmental racism, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense., uh, but then I urge those individuals who contacted me, um, and I urge them to think about systemic inequalities that it, it's about um, it's about environmental policies that allow environmental racism to persist or endure over time. So what we see when we you know when we discuss environmental racism is the disproportionate siting or location of specific types of industries primarily in Indigenous communities and Black communities and in the United States, those same communities as well as other communities of color. But the spatial patterning of industries in those communities doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just happen out of the blue. It happens as a result of environmental policies. And it doesn't just happen out of environmental policy. Somebody creates those policies. There's somebody who's creating or people who are creating those policies and allowing them um, or enabling environmental racism to happen over time uh, due to those policies mm-hmm. uh, So that's something that we I, I find in Canada we are so uh, we're so surface level when we talk about discrimination. We can talk all day about you know direct forms of, of, of racism, you know ra- racism and relationships that are very direct but I find that Canadians have a very difficult time understanding the very subtle and systemic ways in which, Inequality and racism weaves itself into our social structures. And it always does so through policies, through somebody who decided to make a policy that allows or enables uh, environmental racism to happen in certain communities. Mm-hmm. And part of that is protecting your own community as well. That's part of it. It's like, well, we don't want to put it in our community. So, you know, let's put it in their communities. And their communities are always those individuals who are seen as having less value but nobody wants to admit to that but that's just the fact right it's you know black people indigenous people we are at the bottom of the barrel of the socioeconomic barrel and we are seen as having less value uh, and less worth uh, than other uh, and that's connected to history as well than other communities right so it's about also protecting the white community uh the middle class and upper middle class white communities and that was actually highlighted to me during a, a, a talk I gave at Dalhousie years ago, when I finished my talk, a white female student stood up and said to me, you're proposing, Dr. Waldron, that they remove the landfill in Lincolnville, the african Nova Scotian community in Lincolnville, but where do you propose that they put it? Are you proposing that they put it in our community? That's exactly what she said. Our community is a white community. Wow. Right. So just when she stood up to say that, it, it really highlighted for, for me um, what I just said, which is at all costs, um, certain people need to protect their community, the white community, the upper middle class yeah. community. And yeah. And it makes sense. It makes sense to put it in communities that are lacking in value and worth, according to some people. So we really need to, in Canada, we need to start talking more about structural inequities, systemic inequalities, and not simply direct forms of racism.
0: So it seems that, you know, when it comes to the structural issues and the specific policies, right, um, I'm just wondering your thoughts about the ways that that can be addressed, because, you know, there is a wave of interest in addressing these um, types of systemic injustices to challenging um, environmental racism on a systemic level. There's a lot of action going on in regards to discussions on social media. But when you enter into the actual process, first first is naming it and highlighting it, but then you're looking and addressing through your work in various ways, specifics. So I'm just wondering um, if you have any thoughts about Uh, sort of this moment we're at which is amazing in so many ways because people are finally talking about a lot of these issues on a a more like mainstream level Mm -hmm. but there's that challenge of translating that interest into policy changes Um, and it seems that politicians often avoid that specific point.
1: Yeah I mean I for me one of the ways I think there are many there are many ways to address environmental racism, although, you know, I think it's, it's, it's extremely challenging. Um, but one way is policy and legislation, which, you know, is happening. Um, you know, bill to bill C 230, yeah.
0: which
1: is a federal bill, it's called the national strategy to redress environmental racism, which I worked, I contributed to that bill with Lenore Zahn, who's an MP, Uh, from uh, Nova Scotia. Our first try at that bill was actually in 2015 when we collaborated on a Nova Scotia uh, private members bill called an Act to Address Environmental Racism Bill 111. And that did go to second reading, uh, but it was never approved. So over the years, you know, Lenore tried to reintroduce it, but nothing ever came of it. So last year she approached me and she said, I want to turn that bill into a federal bill. Uh, take it to the house of commons and introduce it and then hopefully it'll get a second reading and and beyond that and it actually did we had some success in march of this year march 24th when we learned that the bill was approved right now it's at the it, the environment and sustainability committee um, they've been looking at it and apparently from what uh, Lenore mentioned to me yesterday it's returning for discussion uh, next week on June the 16th and okay. possible possible amendments. So to me, this, is, this, this has never happened before. There's a potential sure. for this bill to be turned into legislation. So I do believe that having an environmental racism legislation uh, is really key in terms of addressing environmental racism because one of the things in the bill is that, you know, the Minister of Environment needs to set up a committee of individuals who would actually look at the connection between uh, environmental toxins, systemic racism, and health. Uh, statistical data, you know, it's it's about collecting statistical data on these issues and other issues. You know, and in Canada, as you probably know, we tend to not collect disaggregated data based on race and other social factors. So this would be the first of its kind. You know, people have been asking specifically around COVID-19, you know, the Black community and other communities, we need disaggregated race-based data because mm-hmm. we're finding that, you know, the higher mortality rates for Black people around COVID, so we just need that data. That data will give us a, a better picture of mm-hmm. how we need to tackle this. Similarly, in order to tackle environmental racism, you really need to know what's going on. Now, I've done the mapping, you know, on environmental racism in Nova Scotia. Yeah, yeah. To, be able to identify cases across Canada Mm-hmm. particularly in Indigenous communities since they are the most impacted, um, is, is so important. So once we have a clear picture of what's happening and who's impacted and the health outcomes, I think that is key in terms of addressing environmental racism systemically.
0: Thank you so much for, for sharing all that, uh, Ingrid. Um, really appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, I guess just um, maybe we could, um, I mean, I I know that these uh, issues um, and sort of the structural um, critiques that you're addressing uh, is an ongoing conversation. Um, but for this one conversation, um, and thank you again for taking the time, uh, I think um, it would be great just to if possible to hear um, uh, any uh, um, reflections you have or like um, points uh, that you can share about like organizations or any sort of uh, uh, indigenous um, or black led uh, efforts uh, to address these issues and uh, beyond the hashtags, which organizations, at least in relation to the work that you do, um, uh, would be important for people to, to look towards and to lift up or support in whatever way they, ca- they can.
1: Oh well, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's really great to see, and this is primarily due to certainly young people who are the most passionate about environmental issues, whether it be climate change or environmental racism. Through the work that I've been doing, I've uh, been able to connect it so, particularly recently, with so many uh, different organizations that I would say tend to be mostly focused on climate change. Um, So I would say that first, Uh, but I've had a lot of support from particularly people here in Nova Scotia around environmental racism. Um, Well, first I I have to kind of mention my organization, the Enrich Project. uh, Yeah, the Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Inequities, and Community Health Project. I started that in 2012, and it's really the only uh, organization in Nova Scotia that's addressing environmental racism. We've got a lot of great organizations in Nova Scotia, but looking primarily at uh, climate change. I can think of one other that comes to mind. There might be more. I mean, the, what is the name of it? Canadian Climate Council. Um, the, the name is, is Canadian Council of, on, oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't remember the name, but they're also oh, looking we,
0: at We can link to it later. No problem. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they're looking at resources extraction. I mean, they don't necessarily name it as environmental racism, but resource extraction is an environmental racism issue because it's happening in Indigenous communities. So I would just go back to my project, the Enriched Project, which I would say is the only, is the only organization that's naming environmental racism in Nova Scotia, and then we're addressing the social, political, and health effects of environmental racism, and not just Indigenous communities, but also in black communities. And that's what makes my organization unique, I feel, is that most organizations are very focused on indigenous peoples. Uh, I don't think some people really realize that black people are also impacted by environmental racism. I would say specifically in Nova Scotia, it's very challenging to find examples of environmental racism in other parts of Canada. I'm sure it's there, but I live here and, you know, and I know that the black community is also impacted, African Nova Scotia specifically. Um, I also formed a new coalition. That's why I now have these relationships with all these great organizations. I co-founded uh, a new organization called uh, the National Anti-Environmental Racism Coalition with, with a guy in Toronto, his name is Naolo Charles. We, we met uh, over Zoom in the summer of last year and early this year, we formed this coalition and we have brought together over fifty different organizations in the environment. Wow! wow. Yeah, it's sh- shocking. Like wow. we didn't really have to do outreach. You know, people just started coming to us.
0: That's amazing. So, yeah,
1: we've got organizations in, from Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. and other other provinces. And they keep coming. And some of them include actually and some of the organizations are the David Suzuki. Uh, Foundation, the West Coast Environmental Law Association, uh, the East Coast Environmental Law Association, uh, the Canadian Environmental Law Association. Wow. We have, we have Nature Canada that recently came on. Wow. Um, um, yeah, we've, um, we've got some individuals who are like members of the Indigenous community who are not necessarily affiliated. Uh, with any organization, but they wanted to be involved. The Coalition of Black Trade Unionists in Toronto, I think, when I think of who's doing great work on environmental racism, it would be them, um, and who are naming it. They're really great at doing workshops um, in the school system for teachers, for students on environmental racism. Uh, We've got Montreal on Action, which is not necessarily focused only on environmental racism, but social justice issues, and that's headed up by Balarama Holdness, who you probably know. Mm -hmm. Uh, because he's running for mayor
0: yeah
1: (laughs) Uh, and we've got the black planners group we've got um, wow yeah it's it's, we've got right now over 50 individuals and we do that work through uh, six working groups so I'm very excited about this what we want with this coalition is that yes we're focused on environmental racism but we want to go beyond that because I'm I'm seeing environmental racism in a way that I didn't perhaps nine years ago, which is it's not simply about pollutants and contaminants. It's also about urban planning. Yeah. It's also about housing. Yeah. Uh, it's about roads. It's about you know. So I I'm taking a much more inclusive approach to environmental racism. About it's it's about the inequities in our environment. It's not sure. simply about pollution and contamination. So that's why like the Black Planners group. Is part of the coalition because it. it's an effort to expand our understanding of the environment so it's not confined just
0: to pollution. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, and also just what you were highlighting um, beyond, um, you know, well, actually, including all the initiatives and efforts um, that you're mentioning is really sort of encouraging the climate justice movement to think about the structural inequalities around climate change and addressing that, um, so important, uh, looking at at that within a framework of understanding and naming environmental racism. So thanks so much, uh, Ingrid, for taking the time to to speak today, Uh, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much.
0: That was an interview with Ingrid Waldron, uh, who is a social scientist uh, and a professor at Dalhousie University. Ingrid has worked very tirelessly to uh, raise the reality of structural environmental racism in Canada, Uh, wrote a book called There's Something in the Water, which was turned into a documentary film in collaboration with actor Elliot Page uh, that you can find on Netflix. Um, Thanks so much to Ingrid for being present uh, today on Free City Radio. Uh, This has been... Uh, Another edition we broadcast every Tuesday. Um, It is 22nd of June. This is the 47th edition. I'm your host in Montreal, uh, Stefan Christophe. Uh, If you have any feedback or ideas about the program, uh, you can always write me at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. My Twitter is spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And to finish the podcast this week, I wanted to go to a piece by the great Lillian Allen. I'll talk to you next Tuesday.
2: Struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. If she be black, make it duh